I was thinking about how when we came to God, I'll say I, and I'm sure brothers of my generation maybe will identify this, and I, I don't want to speak for them, but I know back then, you know, 50 years ago, um, going on that, I'm going back 50 years, I, I thought of this song the other day, and it was, um, and I'm saying this, do, please do not go look for this song, it's an old song, don't look for it, don't bother, I'll tell you everything you need to know about it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of amazing to me, I was going through the, we were on our way to Deary one time, and you're sitting in the uh, Las Vegas airport, and they're playing 70s music. And it's, I said, this is just all the time you hit this stuff, and it's a little weird, you know. I said, because in 1970, we were not listening to 1920 music. <laughs> we were not, right? No. But you know, something did happen then. That's why we're here. Maybe it was the last serious, I see some old timers nodding their head. It was the last maybe really wide move of God back then that we birthed us here, you know. And uh, anyway, it was a song that says, it was a very sad song because he said, I'd love to change the world. And um, this writer, musician, he's dead now. And um, so I wanted, I wanted to find the lyrics and I went to look it up and don't do it. And I, I looked it up and it, it came across these um, two young men sitting in these chairs in this studio. And I guess they do this thing now where they listen to old music or something and they, and they show their first reaction to it. And they say it's their first reaction. They haven't heard this thing, but it's 51 years old. And I, I believe, you know, 52 now, uh, 52 years old. And I believe them. And they're sitting there and they're about 20, 25 years old. And their headphones on, they're talking about it, and they say, well, there's we a lot of requests for this song, and so I'd love to change the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that's a pretty big thing. They'll have to say, well, before hearing this and giving our opinion of it, you know, I'd like to say it sounds kind of cheesy. I'm not sure, what, what does cheesy mean? I mean, <laughs> he said, oh, it sounds kind of corny. The other one's, yeah, it's kind of corny, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, it sounds kind of like that... Uh, Better to do something, not do anything at all, I guess. And then they started laughing, ha, 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 ha. You know, like saying we really want to make a difference in the world. Laugh some more and, said, and then one says, yeah, I'm going to go make a difference. I'm going out and playing golf today. And, you know, their, their cynicism was pretty stunning. I mean, we really believed that stuff. I guess we were naive, you know? We were kind of naive. And then the, the song says, the lyrics do say, I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. And this, they listen to the song and they say, well, that was not a bad song after all, because he admitted he didn't know what to do and we can't do anything about changing the world. And, uh, you know, that really bothered me. And, um, you know, they kind of agreed with the song. Yeah, he was really admitting you can't do anything to change the world, you know. And uh, it made me think of that. You know, the, then I was reading also the end of the Scott expedition to the Arctic, you know, and no, the Antarctic, and, you know, 
Robert Falcon Scott, the Englishman and his men, and, and how they, um, in 1912, they, they, uh, they tried to, you know, it was, a, it was a big, no one had been to the Antarctic, no one had been to the South Pole yet, and they tried to do it, and it was a race kind of to the South Pole, and, and Scott was a naval officer, and, and you all know the story, you probably read the book on it, and um, they go to the South Pole, they get there again, maybe this is the second expedition there, and he takes their seven, uh, five men that head to the pole, and they leave depots along the way of supplies, and um, they get to the pole in the summer, what's the summer, it's our winter, it's the summer, March of 1912, or actually they got there in February of 1912, and, and they get there in all their bravado, and uh, the Norwegians had been there ahead of them. And it was like worthless, you know? They had given themselves to this pursuit and it was worthless. They, they were not the first ones there. And uh, they, he had really given himself to do this. And you know, they get there and the Norwegian flag is flying there. And, he said, and, they, and they, he realized I failed to, to get here. They had been there a month before. The Norwegians had left, and of course. And um, he said, this must, must be the most terrible place on earth because he felt so defeated and that he uh, failed to, you know, win for his country and his bravado, you know, what he, you know, it's what Brother Asi was speaking about, maybe of our generation wanting to posture and all this stuff, you know, we tried to do and, and where we came from. And, you know, it was a terrible thing. They, they got there and then they had to walk back. They had skis on, so they kind of cross-country skied back, but they went 700 miles to get back. It took them weeks. And you can read his account, a terrible account. You know, during the day it was minus 40 centigrade. You know, minus 40, I looked at it, I said, what is that Fahrenheit? Minus 40 centigrade is minus 40 Fahrenheit. You know, that's where the two temperatures coincide. They're both minus 40. And he, you know, and this is summertime in the Antarctic, and they, they trudge back and two of the young men are killed. One walks away from them because he was so frozen that he, he didn't want to slow them down. And he, he said he walked out of the tent and left. And so three of them were left and they trudge on for, for months really, 700 miles. And then they, they get to the point where, um, you know, Scott, you can tell he's thinking, uh, we took risks. You know, we're gonna, I'm gonna be accused of being a fool. He was the oldest in the expedition. Some people said, you're too old to go. And um, he was 44. And they, get, they, they finally, they're only 11 miles short of the destination, the one-ton depot where they had food and fuel. And they only had a day's worth of fuel and they had two days worth of food 700 miles, and they're just short of the destination. 11 miles, and they know it. And they, a blizzard blows up, and they're in their tents, and Scott's in the middle. And, and, uh, but I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, you know, 
my goodness, you know, that's where we, a lot of us came from. We were a driven lot of people years ago. And, you know, I, th I think our heritages, and we all come from different places, but, you know, us, uh, maybe I can speak first generation people, we were pretty driven people. <laughs> you know, we were a little crazed. I don't apologize. I mean, we were, you know, I was imbalanced. So I look back and we all can look back to people before us and think, you know, I, I never did, but I, I read some family history of crazy people like, you know, John Marchant, who was a English sea captain who, who uh, you know, this is where you get this stuff. It's like, hand, is it nature or nurture? I think it's a lot of nature and nurture. You know, it's our nature handed down, and I'm not making excuses for, for that, things Brother Ossie described of uh, bravado and all these things and this kind of pride, but John Marchant teamed up in England with uh, this great, great, great grandfather, teamed up with none other than Francis Drake. And they're both sea captains, and Queen Elizabeth says to them, cuts them loose to go attack the Spanish shipping, and the two of them get together and they say, you know what we'll do? We're going to go attack Spain and we're going to invade Spain. And there were like 200 of them and they invaded Spain. I mean, these are crazy, crazy people. I mean, they attacked Cadiz, Spain and sacked the city. Then they said, you know where the real gold is? It's, it's over on the Spanish main in Panama. Let's head over there. Like in 15 something and they sail to Panama and they raid it there and Marchant gets killed and Drake dies on the way home. Or other people, you know, other crazy people, cousins, Benedict Arnold. <laughs> uh, how about Commodore Perry? Goes to, takes the American fleet to Japan and decides Japan's isolationist a lot going on in Japan. We need to open up trade with Japan and sails into the Yokohama Harbor and says, we're here to open up trade with you. Takes a, a steam locomotive off his ship that he brought over and sets it up to impress the Japanese with America. These are crazy people. And I'm sorry, but we kind of picked up on this stuff, <laughs> you know. And uh, I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. And so we tried that. And, you know, it's always easy with today when you have 2020 vision to look back at and sitting back and saying, well, you know, uh, I see, you know, it was a little crazy what you did, but okay, I admit that. You know, we were hard driven. But the Scott expedition, um, you know the ending of it. I just wanted to read you something that he said. Um, we're getting along here, please bear with me. So Scott, and they, they were trapped in their tent, and you know, I think he was probably struggling with the idea that he had a son back home, and here he was, he was gonna die in Antarctica on a, on a expedition that, for the pole that he lost. And um, so he went over in his journal that he wrote there, uh, justification for what happened and he's writing and saying you know he said I, he said it was all a risk despite careful preparations he said 
The causes of the disaster are not due to faulty organization, but to misfortune and all risks which had been undertaken. He says, you know, people said I was just much too old for this, but he said, uh, I'm 44, but it was really the youngest men who died first. So you can see he was kind of like racing to, to justify what he had done. And, and I'm sure he was thinking, he was thinking of his wife and his, his son back home. And, and um, you know, he went through on the barrier reef, it went to 47, minus 47 at night pretty regularly with continuous headwinds during our day marches. It is clear that these circumstances came on very suddenly and our wreck is certainly due to the sudden advent of severe weather which does not seem to have any satisfactory cause. I don't think human beings ever came through such a month as we have come through. So he's lying in the tent trapped only 11 miles from the destination. He says, we took risks, we know we took them things having come out against us, and therefore we have no cause for complaint, but bow our will to God. Determined still to do, well, he said to providence. I guess that's kind of a deist thing to say. To providence is kind of making it flattening out, you know, to God. Determined still to do our best to the last, but if we have been willing to give our lives to this enterprise, I appeal to our countrymen to see that those who depend on us are properly cared for. See, he's worried about, he's worried about them. That's, that becomes his main worry in the end. If had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. But these rough notes in our dead bodies must tell the tale, but surely, surely such a rich, great country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly cared for. So that's his main concern in the midst of failure and defeat. He's concerned. It seems like he's feeling like, what have I done, you know? Uh, so they died. They froze to death, only 11 miles short of the journey. And so in, in November, they sent a, a rescue party comes out of 11 men. And one of the men was a Norwegian. That's pretty hard. He was part of the British expedition. What, you know, some of you who have hard names, you think? <laughs> Maybe Hebrew names. His name was T-R-Y-G-G-V-E. That's his first name. What did they call him? Trigiv, Trigiv. We'll just call him T. His last name was Grand, G-R-A-N, T. Grand. He was with the 11 men. Can you imagine how he felt because they found out that the Norwegians, his country, had won the race. So he's with all these Englishmen who feel terribly disappointed. And he must have felt a little uncomfortable, but he kept a journal of, of them, the search party. And they went out, and on November 12th, they found him. And it says, it has happened. We have found what we sought. Horrible, ugly fate. Only 11 miles from One Ton Depot, Scott, Wilson, and Birdie, all ghastly. I will never forget it so long as I live. A horrible nightmare could not have shown more horror than this. He found, they found them. They found them at their tent. 
The frost has made this skin yellow and transparent, and I've never seen anything worse in my life. Captain Scott, and this is interesting, seems to have struggled hard in the moment of death. Well, the two others seem to have gone off in a kind of sleep. So Scott, his arms were thrown out, they said, and he, he, he seemed to be going through a terrible struggle. Scott had written in his diary, there is no more hope, and so God, look after our people. Yeah. Regrets. Regrets, yes, at doing things wrong. Regrets it. But we came from a different place that, I, you know, I think of ourselves, and I hope you don't come from the place we had to come through, and I'm not making excuses, but please. Grand would use his own skis. This guy, Grand, this Norwegian, would use his own skis to build a cross above the cairn. You know, they piled up stones, I guess, or snow on top of the tent. He and his fellows built for, for Scott and his companions and took Scott's skis for the return journey. And he wrote in his journal, I am using Scott's skis. They must finish the journey. And they will. We buried them this morning, a solemn undertaking. It's strange to see 11 men bareheaded while the wind blew. What honor they had for Scott and them, you know? And this Norwegian, what honor he had. He, he actually wrote about him. He said he called him, in the journal, he called Scott the owner. A few days later, he would write, when I saw those, he, he's writing in his journal on their way back, having left them in the tent, and they didn't bring them back, the bodies. When I saw those three poor souls the other day, I envied them. They died having done something great. Oh, how horrible must death be having done nothing. I guess maybe those fellows would call this account kind of cheesy or corny. Better than not doing anything at all, I guess. Ha, 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 like saying, we want to make a difference, huh? Let's go tee off in five minutes at the golf course instead. You know, I think of where we come from. I never knew where I came from. You know, I, Paul said he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So maybe I could say as a Catholic, you know, I was a Catholic of Catholics, okay? I went to Catholic grammar school. I went to Catholic high school. I was taught by Jesuits in part of my college. So I have a right to say of the Catholics, please, if you do anything, don't go back there. And people have left here and done that. They've settled for something else. A lot of people are headed there. They're looking for something traditional, easy, you know. You can believe in things like transubstantiation, stuff like that. Please don't do 
Sister Cindy talked about being a Baptist. I'll talk to you about a Baptist of Baptists. You know, my family who went with this guy, Roger Williams, out of, out of uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and went to this place called Rhode Island and founded the first Baptist church. That's the Arnold's. I walked outside the cheese shop the other day. I met a very nice young couple. I asked them, what, what you doing here? Hi. You know, they had two little kids. She had on a dress. And they said, oh, we come out here because of the peace we feel here. And they were very sweet. They were very sweet. I said, what do you do? They said, well, we live in Waco. And he said, I work down at Baylor. And I thought, well, good Baptist family. And, and uh, I said, what do you do there? He said, oh, I'm with the ministry for the Catholic Church. I said, oh, I don't think there are many Catholics at Baylor. Right on the edge of campus. He said, oh, well, you know, Baylor is a Catholic university. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> okay, tell me. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I can identify with this Catholic. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, he said, Baylor's only 17% Baptist today. He said, it's 20% Catholic now. They're the largest denomination at Baylor. He said, so it's a Catholic university and growing. How's that? That's where we could go. That's where we can wind down to, you know. That's where we can wind up and flatten it all out. I talked to someone, a young person here the other day. I told them something about a, a, a musician in a concert in, in New York at, Madison Square Garden in the 70s, I'd seen something where he was a, you know, he, like a lot of people, came from a, a very, a black man, a southern, a southern uh, Christian background. That's where a lot of these musicians came from. And in the middle of this concert at Madison Square Garden, <laughs> he plays a song that he wrote. I mean, thousands of people at this concert not about Christianity. And he's, he's going to go play a song, and he, and he plays a song he wrote called That's the Way God Planned It. And toward the end of the song, he gets up and he dances across the stage. You say, well, he's just, you know, he's just part of this. I mean, he was dancing, and you know how he was dancing across the stage. And uh, he died a number of years ago and had suffered terribly in the church, apparently, from abuse. It was just a terrible thing, but, but um, a person said to me, oh, how 70s that is. <laughs> how 70s. I hope we never missed that thing that grabbed hold of us back then, you know. So, I'm going to finish. We may have been in a ditch when we came, but please don't careen into the other ditch of doing those things, of flattening out who we are, you know. I think I understand my dream and I understand my shortcomings. More, I got a long way to go to understand more. I feel like Brother Ossie said about someone who you know, as they grow older, you begin to, 
you begin to understand more. I guess I can see where I came from. But I had a question for you all. All young people, don't careen into the other ditch. And I wanted to ask you, would you take off your own skis? Let's say they're your own ideas, your own desires, your own plans, as far as they're not from God. And would you make a cross out of them? Tie them together like T. Grand did, make a cross out of them and crucify them. And I could say for myself, maybe other people would say, would you make sure my skis finish the journey? Would you please? I am using Scott's skis. They must finish the journey, and they will. Numbers 13 and 30. And Caleb called the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for surely we can do it. Acts 17 and 6 at Thessalonica. These are the men that have turned the world upside down, and now they've come here too. Take our skis, would you? Take off your skis, and would you mind taking up our skis and put them on and finish the journey. Hope that makes sense. You got so much going for you. Please understand where we come from, if you don't mind. But I, I believe everything Brother Ossie ministered here today, I, I, I believe it for myself. And this is such a wonderful, wonderful place. Amen. That's all I have to say. If you find us frozen in our tent, please take up our skis and finish the journey. Amen. Thank you, Brother Kevin. There was a poem that always, that meant a lot to me. And I, I read it in various circumstances because I felt like it was, uh, I wanted to honor my dad with it and it was uh it was called the fence that me and shorty built and i don't have it and i'm not with me right now and i'm not um i'm not some people i'm not my dad and that i can just quote uh poems like that uh, uh there are a few maybe but this isn't one of them but in essence it's tell it's the story of a guy who a kid who went to work on a ranch and he he thought he was really something and the boss sets him to uh, building fence and he wanted to be a, a bronc rider or a bull rider or whatever it was he wanted to do but building fence was not what he wanted to do and uh, so he he set about taking the easy route of building the fence and if he hit a hole he just moved the if it hit rock, he just moved the hole and dig an easier ground. And 
his fence looked like what you'd expect, a disaster, a zigging and zagging, and it wasn't real pretty, and the boss wasn't, the, his, his boss wasn't real happy with him and told him that their boss was gonna, it was gonna cost them both their jobs if they, if they left it like that. So they went back and, and he, he spoke to the young man about, you know, you won't be taken seriously, but you don't want to do what it takes to be taken seriously. And if you're gonna do it like this, you'll never go anywhere in, 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 in life. And so let's go back and save both our jobs and let's build this fence right. And someday you'll look back and see that fence straight and true and tight and you'll say, you'll look on it and be thankful and say that's the fence that me and Shorty built. Shorty was his boss. And uh, you know, I have had the privilege um, for uh, 23 years um, of being able to serve alongside some of these gray-haired uh, men and I'll probably never get to have gray hair because mom's genes are, are pretty th strong in me and I think I'll probably end up sticking with my dark hair. But it has been the greatest honor to watch those men, starting with my father, and he's an example that I think all of us could aspire to grow old and weak and see the power and strength of God grow stronger for every year that passes. And the weaker the flesh gets, the stronger the testimony and witness of the Spirit becomes in their lives. And I stand with Brother Ossie to say, on my account, don't let it be said because of me that your place is diminished. Amen. You will never be set out to pasture on account of me because I know the treasure that God is still imparting to his people through the wisdom of the aged. We are not a filiarchy. The world around us is a filiarchy. Youth and the youth and whatever the young are going to do, that's the best. Amen. Wisdom is with the aged. Amen. So God help us be those who rise up before the hoary head. Amen. And give honor where honor is due. As what Brother Ossie is saying is as, you, as your strength to do diminishes, your grace and strength to be increases. And what we need is we need those examples. We need to see the ones who are, are being 
what we are all aspiring to. Amen. I told my mom and I told Brother Ossie also, you know, you don't know what it would do to me in the last year of my dad's life, the last two years of my dad's life, I was, I'm, I'm my children's father. Blair's my son. I'm proud of him. I was proud of him then and I'm proud of him now. And I would, he, every one of my kids know what it means when daddy says, why don't you come in my office? We, I want, let's talk for a little while. And we go in the office and, and we have to have those talks that parents have to have, that fathers have to have with their kids, parents have to have with their kids. And dad did not, he would never have thought of usurping that place. Amen. But he, he had something and you have something. And I only say this to emphasize Brother Ossie's words and because I'm kind of, I want to come close with something for, to Brother Kevin. He would never have, he never use, would have thought of usurping my place. But I'll tell you something. When I would see my son bounding up the, the walkway with, a, as I said, a 15-foot bounce in his step from having spent an hour down there just talking with granddaddy as granddaddy was lying in his sick bed. Amen. As he's dying, I have to tell you, that is something that I could not give to my son. That was not given to me to give him. That was given to my father to give him. And he will never forget those hours that he would sit down there just talking with dad and what they meant to him, what they did to shape his life, his future. And I will never be able to be thankful enough because then I also would get the call from dad as he was in his old age dying. He would call me weeping and saying, oh, son, I just had the most wonderful time with your sweet son. What did that do to me as, as a dad? Something that only dad could do. Amen. And so I want, I want our older folks today, and I know this is what Brother Ossie's ministry was. My, what I wanted to say, Brother Kevin, is I want you to know we are wearing your skis. And we are going to pass your skis that have become our skis onto our children. And they're going to wear your skis and their children are gonna wear your skis and we're gonna finish this race together. There's nobody gonna be left behind. There's nobody, nobody. I know some of you probably say, okay, what do I do now? What is my place now? I told my mom, I said, mom, sometimes I don't think you realize if you just, if you walked in with a cane and a bag of knitting and just sat there in a rocking chair, that in itself is a strength and a grace and, a, and an empowerment to God's people just to have you there. So though you may not be doing 
your strength, my strength. I told somebody, I said, hey, my strength, I've lost my strength the way most people do at 65 or 70. Though we lose our strength to do, we do not lose our strength to be. And what God has told us today is the strength to be is the strength that we're all aspiring to gain. Amen. So, Brother Kevin, we got your skis. Brother Jim, Brother Barry, Brother Gary, Brother Howard, Brother Joel, Brother Burl. I looked, back, looked out there and I saw Brother Burl. I said, Brother Burl, we got your skis. Brother Steve, Sister Jaron, all of you. Sister Lizzie, we're wearing your skis. Sister Rhonda, Sister Francis, I can't name you all. My parents said that they used to pray that God would send us old folks. We got a lot of old folks. <laughs> Hallelujah. And we're going to wear your skis. Amen. And the place that you have is the place, the place of your ministry today that you still have to us. Amen. Is the place that we're aspiring to. Brother Jerry, I've watched you for years just quietly doing what you do. And I love you. We're going to carry it on. Amen. The power of God that has been invested in you is the power that we are aspiring to. Amen. So, young folks, do what Brother Ossie told you to. Connect yourself to the aged among us. Amen. And learn from them. Learn from their wisdom. And old folks, know that as much as you have to say, we want to hear it. I love you all. Brother Kevin, you can trust it. I stood here with you 21 years ago before this podium. Amen. Amen. We're going to carry it all the way through. Amen. Are we going to do it? Amen. Amen. Are you going to make a cross of your skis and put on the skis of those who went before you and go all the way, finish the race? Amen. Let's do it together. The thing that came to me is, Joseph, when you go back into the promised land, into the land, when you finish your race, when you finish the course that God has set for you, just make sure you take my bones with you. Amen. Hey, we're going to take the bones of all those who have made the sacrifice before us. And amen. Those who finish the race after some of us also take our bones with you. We're not there yet. Amen. But we're going to get there. Amen. We're not going to stop. We're not going to, we're not going to break the line of continuity, the line of faithfulness that has continued to feed us and carry us all this way. We're not going to break it. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue it so that the kingdom of God will be advanced through us. Amen. I look at Sister, Sister um, Bradford. Amen. I thought Sister uh, Chris was old when I was a child, and I think she probably was a lot younger than I imagined. Amen. But sister, she's been with us all these years being faithful. That's what God that's the people that God has made us out of. Amen. So I just say thank you to all of you. Amen. We're going to carry it on. We're going to keep honoring your sacrifice. Amen. It's not going to end.
This is not about one generation, just like it was not about one man, just like it's not about one gift, one ministry. We are all together of one faith, of one baptism, of one spirit, following one Lord. Amen. So this is not ending with any one. It is continuing as we all unite together. Amen. To complete the purpose that God put us here for. I, I never knew uh, my Yes. 
So oh. 